0: .NET Rocks episode 974 with guest Tim Thomas. Recorded Monday, April 7th, 2014.
1: Thanks very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. It's Thursday. Hey, Thursdays. April 24th. How's it going, Richard? I am well, sir. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. We're uh, in full conference swing here. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Just trying to time shift, you know? Always. And, uh, we we hope everybody's having a good spring here in uh the the western
0: hemisphere. Yeah, this will be a fun week for you cuz this is the week I'm off to Nepal. So, you don't have to deal with shows. We yeah. did a whole bunch of recording in advance, so you could have some plays. I'm I'm tromping across some desert wasteland.
1: What in are the you doing? <laughs> what are you thinking?
0: <laughs> you know, It turns out whenever you do stuff like that, you get really good stories, some of which you've heard. Uh, Yeah, and I'm sure I'll hear no end of them. So (laughs) We will have many dinners together, I'm sure. This this is my fourth run into Nepal, and it's probably the last one, and it was, uh, yeah, I couldn't resist. It'll be good fun. Awesome. I can't wait. Yeah. Can't wait to hear what
1: happens. So, uh, let's roll the music for Better Know Framework. I got something good for you. (laughs) All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, our friend, Mark Miller, who's been a friend of ours for a long, long time. Indeed. uh, He is um, working on some new stuff around design and the science of great UI. Oh. That he is going to uh, make a splash with soon here. I'm not going to tell you any more than that. But I wanted to bring us back to his 2009 blog posts on DevExpress. Uh, February 2009 on great UI. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash Mark Miller on UI, uh, this is just his, uh, the beginning of his uh, uh, thoughts about user interface and what makes good design and what doesn't. And he did some things on DNR TV with me on the science of great UI, but we never even got to any of these great graphics and, and stuff like that, that, uh, that he talks about in this series of blog posts. So this is actually an archive for the whole month of February where he did uh, a series of posts. So start at the bottom, right? And work your way up because it oh, is yeah. blog. And uh, just some really good thoughts. And if you've heard him talk about his ideas on user interface, this is uh, – the proof is in the pudding. So yep. this is his the basis of
0: what he's talking about. And, and something he's worked on for so many years, we almost take it for granted. Like, yeah. This is stuff he thinks about every day. And his thinking is getting more and more sophisticated and reflected in the products he makes, too. And
1: I've had the opportunity to uh, work with him on some of his new stuff and – it's mind blowing. You you just just you
0: wait. That's all I got to say. Awesome. Just you wait. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment. Actually, I should have dipped back a bit into uh, an older show. This is from show seven eighty six, which is the one we did with Bruce Lawson back in July of twenty twelve, uh, talking about responsive web design back when that was a new thing, mm-hmm. right? And Bruce just put out his introducing HTML five book. And this comment comes from. James Hinders, who says, hey, guys, great show. Having laid the groundwork here, it would be really cool if you could devote a future episode to comparing the various frameworks that facilitate responsive web design, like Foundation and Bootstrap, which seem to be getting the most buzz. But I'm sure there's other worthy frameworks out there, and I'd love to hear how these newer frameworks compare to each other, as well as the older frameworks like jQuery, which I love that two years ago, we were to talk about how old jQuery was. <laughs> yeah. Even then, you know, Angle. I don't even think Angular was out at that point, but it just sort of speaks to we've been battling this evolution in JavaScript for quite a while now and uh, trying to take advantage of it. So absolutely, James, we'll do the best we can to dig into more of these frameworks. Maybe Tim has some thoughts on that as well. So, James, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises, who'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com.
1: And that brings us to our guest today. Tim G. Thomas is a software engineer at Frog in Austin, Texas, where he applies holistic design principles to make the web both usable and beautiful. He speaks on various topics at technology user groups, conferences, and meetups, blogs about web, game, and mobile design at TimGThomas.com, and shares his thoughts via Twitter at TimGThomas. Welcome, Tim. Thanks very much. Great to be here. You know, we don't have enough designers on the show, and uh, we talk to design people a little bit on the tablet show. Now that we're rolling basically that kind of content into .NET Rocks, it's really great to bring this content to the .NET world and uh, the .NET Rocks audience. So, thanks for being here. I'm I'm really glad to have this conversation today.
0: Yeah, me too. Wow. How do we even start? I love this idea of holistic design. What does it really mean?
2: So... To me, it's about applying a great level of detail and uh, craftspersonship, if you will, to every layer of whatever it is that you're building. And a lot of people will spend a great deal of time maybe on the UI, just really, really focusing to make that a great experience. And that's certainly laudable. But sometimes that comes at the expense of other parts of the application. Maybe the middle tier isn't as maintainable as it could be, and of course that that can certainly affect users if you end up spending all your time fixing bugs and can't can't build anything new and interesting all the way down to the data layer. If your data is not structured in, in just the right way, uh, that can be a, a pain point as well. So to me, holistic design means end to end make sure that that everything gets Equal attention, and if not equal attention, at least enough attention for it to, to really be a, a real usable piece of software.
0: Wow. Okay. I appreciate that you're, you're not just thinking design here, but uh, thinking about or design like in the layout and so forth, but just how all the pieces interplay as well. That's very holistic.
2: Yeah. I've, I've had to dabble in a, a number of different parts of, of applications. So I've, I've felt the pain of poorly designed databases just as, as strongly as I've felt it for. Badly designed UIs too.
0: Oh, so you've not just been a designer your whole life. Do you not wear a black turtleneck? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, mostly t-shirts and
2: and jeans for me, but no, I've, uh, I started out as kind of a, a back-end developer, if you will, uh, with ASP.NET web forms and did a lot of uh, ADO type stuff. And uh, in the past many years, I've slowly been migrating to where I'm at now, which is almost exclusively front-end. So, not just uh, CSS and so forth, but some of the JavaScript frameworks. How did this frameworks. happen to you, yeah, man? Really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've I've actually kind of it's it's been fairly deliberate, to be honest. I uh, when I first came into the industry, I really wasn't sure where I wanted to fit, so I wanted to try as many different things as possible and just see which one I enjoyed most, most of all, and that ended up being uh, the front end.
0: Awesome. You know, I, I recently read a book called "So Good They Can't Ignore You." Hmm. Which is actually a quote from Steve Martin as to how he got his break as a as a comedian. And one of the things they talk about is almost exactly what you described. That's like you have an industry you're sort of interested in. There's so many different things to do. And you try a bunch of stuff on. And you get that combination of an area you like that has opportunity in it. And that you could see yourself improving in. And you get pulled over to that. Because clearly the demand for somebody who can really consume CSS is high. Do you find that your experience in all of these other
1: areas of IT has helped you in your in designing on the website?
2: Oh, it definitely has. Uh, it allows me to kind of look at a, at a problem and sometimes instantly instantly, sometimes not so much, uh, but see a lot of the constraints. So what what APIs do we have in the browser? That may be able to either help or hinder us in, in trying to get this, this feature built. It's a double edged sword, though, because sometimes I feel like have being knowledgeable of those constraints sometimes makes it uh, um, a little bit harder to see the, the really out there kind of solutions, the, mm-hmm. the less common ones that, that people might not instantly think of. Uh, but overall, I'd, I'd say it's kind of a blessing to be able to say, you know what? I've, I've worked with that particular technology on, on the database side, and we might have some issues implementing
1: this. And you think there are actual rules for designing, um, that you can apply science to? Or do you, does the holistic approach sort of, uh, is it, is it more amorphous than that?
2: There certainly are a lot of rules. Uh, one of the books that, that I always recommend people get is called Universal Principles of Design. Yeah. And it's, it's like a math textbook. I mean, it, it goes into things like sizing different elements with relation to each other to make sure that certain, certain things are emphasized over others. Um, a, a part of it is kind of, uh, uh, subjective, uh, especially in some of the visual design arenas, but especially with, with user experience design. And how people interact with software—it's—it's it's very much a process, and dare I say, it's even—it's even scientific.
0: And and of course, basic measure of scientific is repeatable. So it's not like you've just built one site. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's an important piece of it. Is I do see folks. Well, like, like the comment that was made earlier in the show here, something about bootstrap sites that always look like bootstrap sites.
2: Right. Sure. And to an extent, that's kind of a kind of a good thing. Uh, people very very easily become accustomed to conventions in user interfaces. Uh one of the the things I'm looking at my Skype window right now, the search box is in the top right corner. Right. I can't think of the last time I went to a site that didn't have a search box somewhere along the top right. Mm. And so if you came in and said, "You know what? No, I think it looks prettier if I put it in the bottom left." Nobody's going to find it. Right. So a great aspect of that is being very very consistent.
1: What do you think of the cheeseburger, the triple bar hamburger style, you know, menu that's a meme that's sort of popped up in design and become a standard in web design?
2: Cheeseburgers are my favorite food, so I I fully approve.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Um, you think it makes sense? And you
2: think people get it? I think a lot of people don't get it. I know many of the the people in my family that I talk to who are not really technical uh, have a little bit of difficulty with it. But I think it's a side effect of this move away from real world analogies Mm. to things. So the infamous uh, save icon being the three and a half floppy disk. Sure. When's the last time we saw any of that? Yeah. And so I think as an industry, we're saying, you know what? It's kind of ridiculous that, that we use these antiquated symbols for things. So let's try something new. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I personally couldn't live without the the hamburger icon now. Uh, Even if I was a vegetarian or something, I'd still probably like it.
1: But, you know, there is a middle ground, right? There is a, the difference between a floppy, which is tied to a technology, and and three bars, which is very vague. I mean, you know, it could be a, a hand pointing down, like drop down or something, something that isn't ever going to change, like a hand, or or something that's completely universal that will never change. Not just a hand, but you know what I'm saying? There is There could be a middle ground there. Oh, there certainly could be, and I think maybe the fact that that it is so strikingly different
2: from most of the other iconography that we tend to encounter is one of the reasons why it it has a lot of staying power hmm. um, and I, one of the things I'm reminded of is is the play icon, the little right facing arrow you know that that had origins back in uh in cassette days, and I'm sure even even earlier than that, but it doesn't it's not tied to. Uh, anything solid in the real world. It's not uh, the representation of, of the disk spinning or something like that. So it was kind of abstract, I feel, then, or at least I remember seeing that as a kid and being like, what on earth is this? But it was so recognizable that I easily remembered it uh, long long after I, I finally did know what, what it did.
0: Oh, and I just went digging for the whole cheeseburger design strategy thing and found the original blog post from Jim Jeffrey Cohen or I don't think he even grabbed on. I mean, he just sort of described it as a hamburger. He didn't even grab onto it. But at the same time, I also found this great post from the Netherlands of a guy who actually made a cheeseburger infographic. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'll include the links. They're both awesome. You know, I love origin of stuff, but I love where people take it to of just have, you know, bringing an idea about really thinking through your design in a, in a really elegant way. So can we dig into
1: some of these rules that you live by that, you know, some thou shalt or thou shalt nots?
2: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. One of the, uh, I already mentioned probably the one that, that rules my design life more than any other. And that's be consistent. Mm. Um, And an artist is responsible for changing the way that people think and making people look at at things in a completely different way. Uh, A designer is a little bit more uh, practical and recognizes that people actually need to use whatever it is that they're, that they're making. So as much as I might like to just go completely off the reservation and try to find something that people say, wow, this website changed the way that I looked at the world, uh, It's the important thing is to make it, make it usable and, and user-friendly for them. And to me, a big part of that means be consistent, put things mm-hmm. where, where they're supposed to go. Another uh, principle that, that I really enjoy using a lot is uh, revolves a lot heavily around color theory and how certain cultures represent certain colors uh, differently. So over here in, in the States, much of the Western world, green means go, red means stop. So having to uh, trying to emphasize a certain part of a screen so that a user will be more likely to click on it. Uh, The obvious example is like sign up to give me money for a service that I've made is to make the button green. Yeah. Um, If you make it red, that's kind of indicative of wait, stop, don't do this. Sure. A a joke I sometimes tell in my, in my talks is I don't know why in the U S all of the exit signs are red because to me that means don't do this. Right. It means don't. Yeah, Yeah. If there's some sort of emergency and I'm trying to get out of the building, I don't want to look at a sign and be like, oh, nope, can't go that way. That's that's red. Yeah.
1: To... They are green in other countries, are they not? They are, yes. Um, most recently, I was in uh, London, and uh,
2: those are absolutely green. And they have that neat little Portal 2-looking dude, or I guess the Portal 2-looking dude is, is London exit sign yeah. dude. he looks like but he's moving.
0: Yeah, I think does, Portal yeah. 2 guys just adopted that design.
2: Yeah, definitely. And if you've ever been to uh, Heathrow, I'm sure you guys definitely have. It feels like that the entire game of Portal was built off of Heathrow all the way. <laughs> I from totally
0: believe that.
2: <laughs> little green exit signs to the very industrial mm-hmm. yet glassy type of look. Oh, it's great.
0: And if you haven't played Portal, you need to. Oh,
2: no death, no
0: destruction, no violence, no guns. Just awesome. And cake. And cake. Although the cake <laughs> is a lie.
2: Oh, that's true. Alas. Oh, but spoiler alert.
0: <laughs> oh, did we give something away? Does anybody not know the cake's a lie?
2: <laughs> I feel like now, if you don't know that the cake's a lie, then it's on you. Just and- google
0: dang it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, and you speak exactly to that design metaphor that everybody ha- implies that meeting. It almost provides pleasure at that point that you can read these signs, no matter what language you speak, you know what it's about, you know, you feel empowered. I just don't know that we'd get software to that point or websites to that point.
2: Yeah, which is interesting, because a lot of this is, you know, we've we've got these physical things, physical signs and whatever, that seem to be doing a better job. And yet, you can't really iterate on the physical world nearly as quickly as you can in the digital one. And so you'd think that we'd be able to get these icons right because we can go through orders of magnitude more revisions mm. and try out hamburgers and then maybe try out, I don't know, crepes or something, uh, as a, as a menu icon next and just see which one, which one works. But I feel like maybe the, the web still appears as kind of this wild west to a lot of people. And there's, there's safety in that consistency and conventions that I mentioned. And you start that, that way. And then you just, you don't, want to move you don't want to move that search box you don't want to use that different icon because what if it doesn't work and maybe your entire business is is based on on one web app that may not have the the perfect iconography
1: are there are there any rules that don't seem intuitive at first you know because the the whole consistency is a very obvious one and you know use if you use green for one thing use it all the time but are there any things that sort of you you think about at first and say huh that don't really might not make sense at first? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, one of the the things that has
2: kind of come out of this whole Windows 8, iOS 7 type of approach is to make things less like real-world objects, so it's anti skeuomorphism basically. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of gotten a bad rap um, because I, I personally, the first time I use software, I actually want to use want to look at analogies for things I'm already familiar with. Right. And so I think this, it's maybe not a, a universal principle as such, but this industry trend to start to use icons and design interfaces that don't look exactly like their real world counterparts. Yeah. It's kind of doing, doing them a disservice.
0: Well, and I wonder if part of the reason for the anti skeuomorphism viewpoint was that, we didn't need those references anymore. We've been using computers long enough that the implication of a button doesn't have to reference real world anymore. and it become it has become visual clutter. You know the same way that as you get more experience with a piece of software, all those buttons and tooltips aren't as important if you know the shortcut keys. It's like I think the general the gestalt of of using technology has reached a point where the majority of people know what that means.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And for the vast majority of interfaces, I think you're, you're exactly right. Certainly my phone. I mean, there were things. Uh, I haven't always been an iPhone user. I'm, I'm actually still on my first, first revision of iPhone. And, you know, even though I considered myself an expert with a lot of digital stuff, not to mention cell phones, uh, when I got it, there were still a lot of symbols that, that didn't make sense to me. So. Yeah, it's on one hand, everyone's kind of getting a little more familiar with, with the concepts. But um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure the solution is to get rid of everything that mirrors real world stuff, just for the sake of, of not being skeuomorphic.
1: Well, I, I thought it was kind of a reaction to, uh, you know, oh, my God, our icons are outdated. We look old, you know. Mm-hmm. Being antiquated in this business is death, right? And so you know, something that looks like 10 years ago is old. And nobody wants to use old. People want to use new. Definitely. You know, yeah. I'll still
2: sometimes get a get a pop-up ad that has an old Windows XP button and just makes me think, like, oh, those were – how long ago was that? And I guess now, with Windows XP,
1: unfortunately deceased officially now, uh, it's it has been a while. But, but here's the funny thing is that – these are cultural things, right? And they, they reflect a time. Like Windows 8 will always look like 2010, you know, mm-hmm. 2011, whenever it was, 2008, 2010, yeah. It will always look like that time. And so 10 years from now, even though they're non-schemorphic, the, the icons will still look like they were placed in that time because that's when we use them. Absolutely. And so they will change again. Not just, not because, you know, for, for that purpose, but because they were associated with that time.
2: Yeah, you know, the the word Byzantine comes to mind where at some point in, in history during the presumably Byzantine Empire, things were very, very uh, complex, very uh, um, not straightforward, not minimalistic by any means. And of course, there's a lot of situations in history since then. But now the word has come to mean overly complicated, way way too much going on, just give me give me down to kind of the the essence and you're right i mean it's who knows maybe we'll the cycle will revolve back into the the era where uh everything needs to be serifed and looks like it was uh hand drawn uh, by some calligrapher someplace and and we've totally disavowed any uh minimalism or we're back to skeuomorphism
0: yeah can skeuomorphism make a comeback at the same time what happens when there is no leather stitching for you to actually make onto your phone? You know, <laughs> maybe we are still skeuomorphic with these new designs. It's just reflecting the life that we're now leading.
2: Ah, uh, true. Yeah, you know, I'm, I still feel like a lot of these. Like I'm looking at uh, OS 10 right now. It still kind of looks like there's there's elements of the brushed aluminum, not as as often as as it used to be. Because I mean, yeah, Macs were just totally flooded with with that look in in the UI. But there's still a portion of it that I think it's they they're holdovers,
0: and they're not necessarily repugnant, although, yeah, lately when I've been looking at uh at Max, the UI seems dated. It seems more dated than Win aid.:
2: I think so too. I think it's it's definitely due for a visual refresh. And who knows? For all we know, iOS or uh, uh, OS ten point—I uh, don't know. I don't even know which version we're on now. Uh, we'll go the the minimalist UI, just like iOS seven and and Windows eight did. But I do agree. It parts of it are in in the in light of the fact that so many other devices that we use no longer have any of these screw elements. It does seem dated. Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. and you can see the same thing in uh, in art, right? You know, you go through these periods of culture and art where s- just certain things reflect the times, and it changes in, not because it's schemorphic or non schemorphic just because it changes, you know, because uh, people want to change. That's all there is to it. Though I would love to use a Cubist-inspired operating system. <laughs> can you imagine if art, really infiltrated technology to the point where we had a cubist operating system. Oh, you yeah. Know. Wow.
0: Well, you
2: think about it, everything that we use is basically pointillism. Sure.
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I want pointillism. Cubism is fine. Give me pointillism. Yeah, pointillism. Exactly. <laughs> Pixelate everything. Exactly. <laughs> Pixelate all the
1: things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no. They were, forget about tablets. We're talking about the 10-foot experience. <laughs> yeah, you got to stand back 10 feet in order to see the picture. Nice. Yeah. It's for the really big screens. Yeah, that's right. Call me too loose. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Oh, man. Yeah, you know, all of the, we do have skinning and themes and so forth, but they're just really almost color changes over top of the same thing every time. I've never really seen a truly skinnable user interface where it became substantially different. Mm-hmm.
2: you know i i remember i don't know if you guys ever used uh window blinds for windows back in the day mm-hmm. but i would uh boy i loved that because you would download a theme for that and things would generally be in the same place you'd still have your your close and minimize bu- uh, buttons at the top right all the normal things wouldn't really change dramatically uh in location but boy the ui was completely different you'd get like ancient egyptian stuff and so all of your uh Text would be in hieroglyphics. Of course, that was a usability nightmare. (laughs) But uh, how good are your
0: hieroglyphics?
2: (laughs) All of the all the textures would be different. The shape of the windows would change completely. And to me, that was kind of my first experience with completely changing the theme and the skin of the user interface. And I think now I I feel like at least I'm not sure my desires have lessened for that sort of thing. I certainly wouldn't mind being able to customize. Uh, my, my UI is a little bit more for operating systems and, and phones and whatnot. But I feel like as a society, we've kind of gotten away from that, at least over, over here in the Western world. Can't really speak to many other parts of the, of the globe, but we've kind of settled. You know, uh, uh our phones all relatively look, look the same. Our, our desktop operating systems are pretty much identical, uh, within, within themselves. You know, obviously, uh, Windows looks very different from OS 10, which is very different from Ubuntu, for example. Right. But within those OSs, there's there's really not not much you can do. You know, Windows 8 lets you change a bunch of colors. Uh, to your point earlier, and I think that's about as as customized as we can get with the technology that we have.
0: Well, and it makes you wonder. You know, we keep talking about sort of the lack of design principles for a while there that Microsoft had, although Metro, I guess we still, we're still we allowed to call it that anyway, that's actually right. laid new principles in, and, and Win 8 more or less looks like that. Although they're diverting away from some of those user experience elements, too, that apparently the start buttons is making a comeback. Yeah, well, uh, that's a different thing. I, th- I think the Metro
1: design principles are still great for, for tablets and, and for phones. Just, you know, they don't belong on the desktop. And I think that's what you're seeing, what you're talking about, Richard. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? It uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to replace all my Windows 95 toaster icons with cheeseburgers. Nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Windows 95. Got any of that running?
0: God, I hope not. Yeah, me either. Pretty much eliminated all the XP from my life, too, so. I did that a long time ago. It's just, it's just 7 and 8 now. It's all gone. Yeah, okay.
1: Well, it's really time to give away a D experience uh, subscription from DevExpress. Nice. But before I tell you who won that today, let's talk about the uh, DevExpress Universal. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow whether it's an office inspired application or a data centric analytics dashboard DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise learn more and download your free 30 day trial at devexpress.com/superhero all right buddy who's our winner today's winner is Craig Anthony Richards congratulations Craig yeah, Craig wins, for you. Craig wins the D Express subscription from Express, And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net rocks fan club. We have thousands of fans all over the world. and every show, we give away great stuff like this to a randomly selected member of the fan club. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology handpicked by us. Well, and the winner, of course. Of course. To one lucky, randomly picked member of the fan club. We've done it twice now, and it could be you, but you got to be a member to join. So, uh, we also like to ask our guest, Tim, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, anything at all, not just development or anything technological, right now, like let's go shopping, what would you buy?
2: 3D printers, no question. Awesome. I, yeah. I so badly want to jump on. this kind of maker space Mm. do things in the real world so get a really good good solid maker bot or something a couple hundred dollars in material because i'm gonna screw it up a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) and
1: uh you know just just have at it see what i can make now are you good with cad software 3d design software
2: i i am a bit uh i uh Actually, a little known fact: I, I won a, a regional 3D modeling competition back in high school. Whoa! Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, we drove up to uh, up to Dallas, competed in a big thing, big big deal for like ten people. Nice. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and I still dabble in in 3D from time to time.
0: Wow, that's cool. What did we? How did we do 3D stuff before 3D printers? What do you mean, like manufacturing? Yeah. Great big machines. Yeah. Did, did, did you actually use a milling machine, Tim, to, to make your item? Like, how did they actually create your 3D Factories object? Factories and robots, right?
2: No, yeah, we were actually, this was a uh, uh, computerized 3D, so it was all,
0: all on the screen. Just digitally visualized. That's right. Yep. I, I did some work actually programming 3D milling machines. Uh, to build stuff out of aluminum. But it, what was interesting about that was that it really mattered the size of the tool you could use. Like There were some things you just couldn't make. One of the biggest pieces in the software was you gave it the model and it figured out, is this physically possible to cut? So there was a very dis- you know, limits in this um tightness of radius and openings on the inside and so forth and that sort of set the limit for what you could make that way. All subtractive manufacturing, you start with a billet of aluminum and you cut it away. Cut away everything that doesn't look like uh what was that? <laughs> Everything that doesn't look like
1: David, isn't it? Right. Is that Michelangelo? Dad, I don't know what what I'm talking about. But anyway, you know, there's a a garment manufacturer, um, garment cutter manufacturer here in Connecticut called Gerber that I know of that makes um, big machines that, you know, basically make uh, clothes out of, you know, 3D designs and fabric. Put the fabric in one end in the design and boom, like a shirt or pants or blouse or whatever comes out the other side magic magic and they've been doing that since
0: the 80s i think at least yeah i'm sure there's a few steps in between feeding in cloth and clothes coming out but yeah yeah yep but you know they have
1: that's what they do they have these big robotic machines that do that
2: so any minute now one of these days we'll get one of those at home so i can order some pants off of amazon and they'll get
1: printed right at my house yeah you know we are we are headed towards the star trek replicator there's no doubt about it
0: yeah Printing cloth is an interesting problem.
1: Yeah, that you don't you don't you, I don't think you would print it, but uh it was, maybe it would arrive by drone.
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> that would be good enough. <laughs> I, I guess I'd have to make do with a drone arriving at my house with my pants.
1: You know, nobody's ever asked me what I would do with five thousand dollars. No. No. And nobody's going to either, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fine. Be like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carl. <laughs> no, you know, I've. I, I, it just occurred to me that, um, and we were talking about this just in another show recently, Richard. Those the drones that have the cameras in them. Yeah. I'm just waiting for a really good quality one that doesn't cost ten grand. That has a that has a stabilizing gimbal, and I can put a DSLR camera up in it, and uh, that will fly around three thousand feet, something like that. Maybe even 1,000 feet would be okay. Yeah, that's it. That's what I got. Awesome. All right. Back to the guest because, you know, it's your show, Tim. Um, we were talking about sort of design principles before we get uh, on to the schemorphic talk, um, sort of unconventional or maybe not obvious design principles. What about, you know, things from the field, things that you've learned that uh, you didn't really think you would have to learn? Clients and users lie (laughs) all the time. All the
2: time. All the time.
0: Is it an intentional lie or they just don't know?
2: uh, I certainly hope it's not intentional uh, but I I feel like people just definitely have a recency bias and, and so many other biases that there are certain things you can ask users, especially in the, some of the preferences. Do you prefer this color scheme or this color scheme? Mm. But when you ask them things like, what feature do you use most often? There's no way you can trust the answer that they give. That's when I always try to go to, to analytics mm. data and actually say, no, if you look, you said that you use this one feature all the time. Mm. Just so happens you used it right before I talked to you. Yeah. And that's the only time this week you've used it. That's what you were talking about when you said recency. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. What whatever is the most recent thing you did in your mind is is going to stand out a little bit more yeah. than everything else.
0: You know, and I like this idea of analytics to evaluate design. We talk about analytics to evaluate functionality all the time, but you know, how much how much can analytics inform your design?
2: Quite a bit. Uh, most famously, I think a lot of people a lot of attention is getting put toward A/B testing. Right which uh, is, is a little bit reactionary. I'd prefer it if, if we could somehow uh, predict what, what people might do ahead of time. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, it's it's nice to be able to say, I'm going to go ahead and build these two separate things and then give half my people one of them and half the users the other one right. and then just see which one gets us our results.
0: But it's still a question of are either of those designs actually good? Are we just talking about dumb and dumber? And what do you measure to know one was better than the other?
2: Right. So a lot of the easy stuff is things like I have a subscription service. Hypothetically, I don't. Right. Maybe one day. Uh, and then you uh, put up two different UIs and then find out which one gets you a, a bigger percentage of, uh, of new subscribers. And it's, it's certainly not, uh, not 100% accurate. It might just happen that, that you got uh, the 50% of the users fit into one particular demographic. And the other 50% fit into another demographic. So there's, you have to be worried about uh, confusing correlation with causality. But it's, a, it's a, a good place to start, at least. And as you can iterate on this stuff pretty quickly, the option might be kind of like you're, you're at the uh, optometrist. So you start out with two options, your, your A-B testing, then you find out that B works. All right, well, let's do B-C testing and then let's see which one of those works and maybe we'll do ca testing just to to cover all of our bases. So it's certainly not a not one test will solve all your problems. It's kind of a process, iterative approach. But eventually I think you'll you'll get to the point where you get a get a better result.
0: Mm. I have as a as a performance tuner and tester, I have actually slowed sites down to show m- metric changes because making stuff go faster is really hard, but making stuff go slower is really easy. So it's like, if we make this site two seconds slower, what does that actually cost us just to try and pull the metrics together? I'm just wondering if you could do the same kind of idea and design to actually, you know, Hmm. we we if you do an A-B test, you decide A is better than B. And you always make a hypothesis at that point of why A was better than B. But if you really want to shake down the hypothesis and you say, okay, well, let's make a C version that takes away what we think made B better and see if it's worse. Well, I can...
1: Uh, you, you know mean, what I like, mean? You mean like if a button is too small, you make it bigger um,
0: or make it smaller instead of making it bigger? I guess it all depends on what the hypothesis you're coming at with. is. like, was that color stronger that more people clicked on it? Or was making it flash better? I don't, Tim, have you done this sort of thing? Like you've repeatedly tried experiments to really figure out why one design was better than another?
2: You know, I actually haven't. Uh, thanks for calling me out on on the air, by the way. On something I do. <laughs> but that's that's a fantastic idea. So yeah, to, to kind of play on what you've got already. So you've got uh, maybe a, a button with a certain level of emphasis, and then you do an A B test with another button that's a lot more emphasized, and just to make sure that that was actually what was going on. You'll have a third test where the button's completely innocuous versus everything else on the
1: page. And just make sure that, that all of those results kind of line up. That makes perfect sense. Now, would you test the same people? Because once they've been tested with one button, how are they going to, you know, you may have been, uh, you may be uh, communicating suggestively to them something. Would you test with different people, with different versions? You know,
2: ideally, it, it would be different people, but, you know, especially for somebody like me, the, the sites I tend to work with don't have millions of users. Mm. It's often in the the dozens of users like my blog only doesn't get that many users so if I'm doing any a B test there ultimately I've got to t- uh, send the same thing or different things to the same group of people but uh, making making minor tweaks so that maybe people don't don't even notice quite as quite as much uh, and of course just Letting it go for longer periods of time. So don't just do the same test on, on day one and then do a completely different test on day two. Yeah. And, and you'll, you'll probably get a statistically significant
0: group of people. Yeah. And in, in performance tests these days, we're mostly doing it in production. So you always have a different set of people. It's almost, you can't repeat a test if you even wanted to. Are there
1: uh, websites you can point us to that are examples of really horrible design? that you wouldn't mind pointing out. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, you know, I might have to get back to you guys on that and send, send some links out for the viewers. How about the other uh, way?
1: Really good design. Th- websites that you really like.
2: Uh, you know, one of my favorites, and I'm actually going to bring it up here, is uh, called Neon Mob. And it's a uh, online kind of trading card type game. A game is probably a strong word for it. It's It's online trading card collection. And it's... They've just done a fantastic job. I mean, they've, they've iterated a lot. They've gone through several revisions since I started quote unquote playing it, Hmm. uh, I guess a year ago or so. And they've, they've got it down. I mean, they're, they're doing a lot to tweak the usability every time. And a lot of it's fairly obvious, at least to me, uh, because I I sometimes look for this stuff, but I'll, I'll be able to tell when they change the colors in a very subtle manner to make something else pop out. Uh, or be a little more emphasized than something else. All the way down to the, the typography is really crisp and clean. They've got this, this kind of um, a translucent feel mm. to a lot of their, their user interface. And I think these guys specifically have a really tough job because the site is basically, the, the content is almost exclusively art yeah. of a number of different styles. There's, there's things that are close to photographs, There's things that are very, very realistic, uh, with a lot of shading, definitely more the, the textured skeuomorphic type, uh, though it's not really trying to represent anything in the real world necessarily. All the way down to just sort of line drawings. They've got so much of this that their user interface really has to stand out in its own right, but not compete against any of the art that you're, that you're seeing. So they've—I feel like they've done just an amazing job with with subtle gradients, and I already mentioned the typography. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's always a pleasure for me to to log in every day and collect my my cards for that day, because you never know. Maybe they, maybe they've made a change that, that really tweaks the UI in a good way. And wow, nice carousels and things. I I really like it. Oh, so it's it's very refined. I love their use of of animations. I think they've toned down a lot of the blurs, but they used to early on have a lot of blur, which uh at the time was, was kind of kind of unusual. We didn't necessarily have those CSS properties to do that. So they did some really cool stuff.
0: Yeah, there's an interesting thing, of, I mean blur adds realism, but only if you use it just right. Doesn't I mean I guess that's the question. That's that's a tricky thing to do.
2: It is, absolutely. And and you're exactly right. I think Blur in general is is very skeuomorphic itself. What what right. does blur mean on a screen where everything can be equally in focus at the same mm. time? Mm-hmm. So you really have to be careful when you use it. Uh, either just use it to a small extent just to provide some accents or what I've seen a lot lately. Uh, I'm guilty of this on my own Twitter avatar uh, background. Um, on on Twitter is I'll just like crank up the blur slider a lot, and what you get are these really interesting interplays of colors that you don't normally normally see together. But overall, yeah, you've you've got to be judicious with it.
0: Well, and I was thinking about blur in terms of implying rapid motion. But could you could you actually use blur so that the non blurred part is a thing you think the user should focus on?
2: Oh, absolutely. That's that's a, a great way and something I've I've tried in a couple of different apps. Though, to your earlier point, I think that's one of those types of visual metaphors that's kind of on the wayside. It's it's sort of going away a little bit. But I I absolutely like the uh, concept of of blurring out things that you don't want users to focus on and then keeping in focus the things that that really should be there. Though, now we start crossing boundaries into the the performance realm, where blurs are not not really the fastest thing for websites to use. So if you use it too much, then it can
0: certainly slow down your page. Right. I mean, if you if you had a form to fill in and everything was blurred except the line item you had focus on, that can't be cheap processor-wise. Oh, I'm sure it's not. No way. I just wonder if it's actually better. Will that annoy the user? Like, that's a really... To me, that's a really... Because now you're kind of demanding. You must look here.
2: Exactly. And there are some trade-offs. When you do that, you lose the ability... To sort of see the, the complete view of your form. So if everything's right. in focus, it's very easy to say, oh, I've filled out these these fields, these others don't have any values in them. But if you start blurring things, there's there's some trade-offs.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't even think and I didn't even think of that idea. Just you totally blow my mind now. When I ever think about CSS these days, I think about you know radius corners. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was a big deal. I boy. Yeah. As soon as that came out in whatever browser was, I guess, the, the first to do it, that was, that was my browser and, and every single thing I designed had a, had a border radius on it.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think is, I mean, there are design fads like that, right? That get totally overdone.
2: Oh, yeah, certainly. I, I think the, the most heinous for me personally was the, the OS ten uh, sort of jelly bean buttons. That just uh, seemingly overnight just were everywhere on the internet. Everybody had these really crazy glossy buttons with uh, with thick drop shadows on them. And maybe the first two or three websites I went to, I thought it was cool. And then after that, it was it was already old. <laughs>
1: yeah. What's the uh, most heinous design uh, uh, infraction? that you see constantly over and over again One that of the we things haven't that, talked about.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. One of the things that really really gets me is when not enough attention is given to proper color contrast. Yeah. Um, I have, I'm fairly fortunate. I don't have a, a, a color deficiency in my vision, but I know people who do, and I've worked on projects where the goal was to make a site more usable for people that, that have difficulty seeing and I see this all the time. I mean, and I've I've got iOS seven on my on my phone, and there are parts of that that even with my own sort of lack of of uh, uh, problems with with uh, color perception, it's it's hard for me to read some of this text. And I can only imagine it's it's infuriating for people that that have a great deal of difficulty differentiating colors. So I, I normally uh, will call out sites and, and apps that. Don't do a good job of color contrast and try to get as much attention their direction
1: as possible. I think think this might be one of the reasons why, uh, software, a lot of software, professional software use this very dark gray background. It's not quite black, but, uh, because you have a large dynamic range to go, uh, you can still use black, but you, you still have a lot of play for contrast. You know, whereas if you start with a light background, you can go in either direction, but you don't have that much of a dynamic range in each direction of contrast. You know what I mean?
2: Yes, absolutely. And it's
1: kind of confusing, whereas you just go in the, the brightness direction. Now you have a lot more uh, values of contrast to to play with. And of course, though each of those levels of brightness convey information of importance.
2: Yes, definitely. And there's a, a lot you can do with just, just brightness, just luminosity. All of the colors being equal, say you just pick one accent color, there's a great deal you can do with that, with that brightness slider. Mm. You can make things fade into the background or instantly become to the forefront just by tweaking that a little bit and turning something from a darker color to a very bright color.
0: Right. Yeah, that, another way to do that blur effect on a form, right, would just be playing with the contrasts a bit. Exactly. Although most of the time when we have a contrast problem, it's under-contrasted, right? Is, I, I don't see sites that are over-contrasted a, often, or is that even really possible?
2: You know, for me at least, it's it's very hard to be over-contrasty. The, the most contrasty you can be is white on black or black right. on white. And Which we do every still,
0: day. Yeah, yep. exactly.
2: Uh, and, you know, maybe it's it's a problem in a dark room, but with normal office lighting or home lighting or out on the street with your cell phone in the sun, um, especially in that last case, it's it's a huge benefit. And uh, normal lighting conditions don't, don't really affect it that much. You know, it's it's mm. not as as jarring when you already have some ambient light with you.
0: Yeah, there's a whole other level of the conversation is just dealing with form factors, lighting, and operating conditions. Mm.
2: Oh boy, definitely. You know, I was. Uh, have you guys heard of the the Flex tool?
1: Adobe Flex?
2: Uh, flux, F-L-U-X. Oh, Flux. Yes. Uh, so it's tell us about it. F.L-U-X, I think, or one of those. So the idea being it adjusts the color temperature on your screen depending on the, the time of day. So daylight is very, very bright. Uh, I'm making up some numbers, uh, but it's it's like 6,500 Kelvin or one of those Kelvin scale very high numbers which means it's a very very pure white, uh, hmm. very very bright. But incandescent light bulbs can be just a couple of thousand kelvins, which is a lot more of a yellow light. Yeah. So you may have remembered in the store seeing these like daylight bulbs that that look blue. And the reason is the incandescent filaments glow at a, a much lower color temperature so they make things appear very very yellow. So they add some blue tint to make it seem more more white. So the the concept behind this flux app is during the day, you're probably under fluorescent lights, or ideally, you're under some natural light. But in either case, you're using this very cool color temperature. At home, however, most of us have incandescents, or even if they are something like LEDs, there's some of these lower color temperatures, so they appear a little bit more yellow. And that jarring color difference between the incandescent lights you might have in your house and the very, very bright, uh, pure, almost pure white of your monitor can cause eye strain, give you headaches. And me personally, uh, I actually credit some of my uh, sleep problems with using the wrong color temperature of monitor. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm at the house, uh, lying in bed, working on my computer. All the lights around me are, are kind of yellow. And then I've got this really bright light that, for all I know, tricks my body into thinking that it's daylight. Mm-hmm. So what Flex does is says, All right. It's it's about time that you should start winding down for the evening. You're probably at home, probably have incandescent lights. So I'm going to lower the color temperature on your monitor a little bit, make it a little bit yellow. And at first it it's really unusual. It takes a long time to get used to. I'm still not sure I'm completely used to it. Mm -hmm. But now that I've used it for uh, a few weeks or so now, uh, I, I don't think I could live without it. You know, I'm sitting in bed and my eyes are just less; they feel less strained. Maybe it's psychosomatic, but I feel like it's it's definitely improved my workflow. Uh, of course, when I'm doing color sensitive stuff, you want to want to turn that off. Otherwise, everything will end up looking really blue.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Funny. Uh, I just did a Hansel minutia with Scott Hanselman over on his, his show on Hansel minutes, and he brought this up too. Same thing. I'm working late, and this is just a lot less strained that the the. Windows automatically adjusts, but he said it consumed 2% of one processor hmm. all the time. People are complaining about that. He's like, I got eight processors. I think I can give up 2% of one of them. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's just a natural extension of, you know, automatically adjusting the brightness on your monitor, basically yeah. with the with the camera. You know, if you can get, um, instead of using the time of day, you know, you have a, a fairly sensitive camera that can look at the and adjust based on the color temperature of the ambient light we'll adjust the color temperature of your monitor. Now, now you're talking. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Love it. Uh, We're we're headed that way. I'm sure. Uh, Do we cover everything, Tim, or is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap it up? Uh, No, that's, that's all I got. Unless you guys had any other questions.
0: Uh, We always got questions, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I think we're at a good spot. Thanks so much for your time, man.
2: Oh, no problem. glad to do it.
1: Absolutely. And we'll see you next time on .net rocks .net rocks is brought to you by franklin's net and produced by pop studios Now go write some code. See you next time.